Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Susan White. Susan is the Managing Director at Phoenix Interior Design, an interior design company which provides UK developers with quality and inspirational show homes. Uh, Susan, very warm welcome to you. Good morning and thank you for joining us on the programme. Good morning, my pleasure. It's a pleasure welcoming you with us, uh, Susan, and it certainly is a uh, nice day for it. Um, Normally, I think at this point in the programme, we tend to discuss sort of leadership. But I think with regards to the wider COVID situation and the context that we're having that discussion in, I feel it would be remiss of me not to address that elephant in the room and ask you how this whole pandemic over the last 14 or 15 months has affected you and affected your business. Okay, well, in the first instance, I'd like to thank everybody, National Health, everybody, our suppliers, our clients, um, government, everything uh, for us as a company to move forward. I think uh, what the biggest issue for us uh, with the COVID lockdowns, etc., has been twofold. Not only is it um, with regard to my clients and also our suppliers, it's my team. So it's a big round of applause for my team to uh, still be with us and to also still have the enthusiasm for our industry to be award-winning and leaders in our industry. So if it's okay, I'm just going to start with our clients. So we have twofold clients. Uh, Phoenix deals with every major national developer in the UK and Iggy also deals with private clients. So we have noticed uh, uh, an ups and downs for both companies. So with COVID, um, in the first instance, it was really uh, displaying the fact that interior design is a discretionary item. Uh, Private clients put uh, their products or their um, houses um, or commercial buildings on hold this was really because there was so uncertainty uh, with COVID. So um, what we've noticed uh, since uh, we've had a bit more of a leniency, there's been a pent-up demand, which is great. Mm. Um, but there is a downside to that is suppliers. Of course, with COVID and Brexit as well, uh, we have noticed um, demand um, has increased but perhaps the product lines aren't available uh, due to uh, supply and delivery. So we had big issues with regard to getting supply to our end user, our clients. What we noticed obviously during COVID was that the housing developers still continued. Um, And with that, also it meant that we still had our deadlines to adhere to. What we also had to do is um, we had to be very careful with the COVID rules. So when we were installing our show houses, of course, we had to have social distancing. Of course, all our CSCF cards had to be up to date. Um, our RAMs testing also had to be approved before we were on site. And of course, hand washing and our masks. So, you know, when you're installing large houses up and down, staircases, uh, the mask was still left on. So we had to make sure our team were looked after. They had breaks. They were able to um, put fluids into their bodies. So what it meant was that we never let any of our clients down. We always uh, installed with the deadline because there was still pent-up demand for brand-new housing, uh, bills uh, with the help uh, with the government, with mortgages, etc., um, people were purchasing very quickly. So it was imperative for the show houses to continue. But of course, also mm. meant that many people weren't able to visit the show houses. 
So the up a turn for us as designers was we had to do a lot more on walkthroughs. Uh, we had to discuss uh, many sale points on social platforms. And to make it interesting for the end user, we were also educating them on how to achieve a look, um, how to dress flat surfaces, how to make it very interactive, uh, Q&As, and make it more of a story. Every time we design um, any home, whether it's a private client or a commercial build, there's always a story to every single product that we choose, whether it's window treatments, flooring, doors, door handles, furniture, any form of FSME. There's always a reason why we have chosen those particular products. So uh, sometimes that storyline is lost. So it enables us to really engage with the end user and get them all excited about the products that we have chosen and the reasons why we have chosen those products. So for us, it became really exciting. And we all needed a bit of a lift uh, with these terrible 14 months. So the social platforms became a lot more important to us and to our developers uh, because that's how they engaged with their end users. And when it comes to using those sort of social channels to connect with people more, if you're leading people that way as well, did that sort of warrant a change in leadership style and approach from yourself, you feel, reflecting back on this whole time? Yes, uh, I think um, I've been uh, an interior designer and architect for over 20 years. So we have to be very aware of our status as interior designers. We have to be empathetic. We have to be curious um, about the space, how that space is used. We also have to be patient with regard to getting those products we desperately want. There's an awful lot of common sense as well involved in designing a room or a house or a garden. And it's a lot about problem solving. So um, the function of our homes change. So those platforms were really important to us to tell the story and also made us aware, very aware, that moving forward, of course, those platforms have become our Bible. So Zoom calls, Teams, interactive um, online presence, um, visual walkthroughs, even silly little things like um, express international shipping, uh, we've become you know, very reliant on those services. And any digital platforms moving forward and in, during the 14 months have basically been our right hand. So we've had to be very mindful of all those different platforms um, and coming across very clearly, explaining the reasons why, the story. But what it what it has resulted in is having an amazing relationship with our clients because they've got more time actually because mm. some people have been working from home. Um, so we've been able to have informal chats on Zoom or Teams or whatever uh, the platform is, but um, they have been more connected perhaps um, with the, the, the story. The only downfall, I suppose, is the feel and touch of products. We always, as human beings, we we need that interaction with products. So I suppose that's the only downfall. Um, but, of course, that's where the shipping comes in, where mm. the, the sampling has been sent. You have had quick turnarounds. So it's um, we've worked our way around it. And moving forward, I think this is going to be a staple for us. It is the platforms and it is the shipping, which we're going to be completely reliant on moving forward. Yeah, certainly. It does look as if flexible working in a great many industries is going to become part of the status quo in how we do business in this country moving forward from here. And talking about the future, it's going to be an exciting time, isn't it, for interior designers, for constructors, because Build Back Better is, of course, the slogan for the government's recovery plan from lockdown. And so it's going to be a huge time for people like yourselves. It is. Um, and it, you're right, it is exciting time. I think it concentrates the mind as well on products. It really clears 
um, us as designers um, as to the certainty of projects as well. Whereas before, perhaps it was it's a maybe, but now people are more certain. And yes, they want this show house to happen. Yes, they want this this uh, private home to happen. So the pent up demand has cleared people's focuses on on those niggly things which they might have ignored in their home. Um, but during the 14 months of lockdown, it's become too niggly and therefore people want to do something about it. For us moving forward, um, I think also it's about justifying our fee, our pricing, our services. So I think it's helped us to, for us to clarify and for also our clients to clarify the difference between interior designers interior architects or interior decorators. We all have different genres in all three of those fields. So uh, an awareness of what each of those demographics do um, is important moving forward mm. um, because there are certain people that can do various bits and pieces. So that clears the mind and it gives a perceived value as to what your offerings are to clients moving forward. And just thinking about the sort of state that we're in now in terms of society with the restrictions that are there, are you finding that you're able to sort of operate largely as you were pre-pandemic or are there still some limitations and you're just waiting on that sort of July 19th freedom date? There are some limitations. Um, I think that um, being designers, you kind of need to work in the office. So we were very lucky that uh, the team um, are with us. But I think moving forward, that you know, the workspace is going to change, of course. Um, we've noticed that, with, you know, perhaps if people were working from home, they've really missed that social interaction. So, and with designers, we bounce off each other. You know, we get excited about seeing new bits and pieces. So it's, we've noticed that even in my office, it's the social interaction and the social spaces which have increased. Uh, the amenities as well that we offer our team have increased. Yes, there's always going to be an area of working from home, uh, but I think it's just a little bit more tricky for us as designers because we need our products, we need the feel, we need the touch. And we need uh, the bounce off feel that we have with our team. So um, I think moving forward, it's just going to be more relaxed uh, with regard to the layout of the office, um, how we interact. Obviously, everything has to be COVID friendly. I think that's always going to be the case moving forward for many years. But uh, what we have noticed with our interiors, um, with what has happened during the 14 months, materials have changed. So we're looking for products which are perhaps non-porous or products that are easy to clean um, because we're trying to reduce infection levels. Uh, there's products coming out now which are uh, free of, of COVID. So um, if COVID lands on it, we can clean it. It won't stay on there. So there's all sorts of products now which we're looking at hotels which have uh, carpets which are COVID-friendly, et cetera, et cetera. So our understanding of products moving forward has increased because that's, of course, what we're looking for. What we also notice as well with our clients is um, if they're working in the city environment, how colours have changed. So before, um, we were all quite safe with neutral palettes, the ivories, the totes, the greys, etc., with highlights of colour. But of course, now that we have noticed that colour is so important, um, it gives us a sense of relief. Colours are make us happy. Um, the pandemic has sort of understandably given us a feeling of sort of unrest and anxiety and perhaps grief, unfortunately. So we're now craving colours, especially if it's colours related to nature. So... Farming colours, greens, um, again, which are linked to uh, well-being, blues, which are also calming colours, um, mixed with the security, of course, of well-known fashionable colours like greys and taupe. But colour has become so important in our interiors because we need to have that slight relief. We need that smile. We need that uh, security blanket. So colours are now going to be our 
happy place. It's almost like wrapping yourself in a blanket. It's it's the smile. It resonates um, happy memories, perhaps of holidays, um, of you know, upbringing, childhood memories, anything that evokes uh, a memory, a happy memory. So we're seeing that in colour. The colour is now being brought forward mm. um, into our interiors. Yes, it certainly sounds very interesting and a nice sort of shape of kind of mentality and a change of approach there. It's going to be really, really fascinating to watch over the coming months and years. And um, just as we think about the uh, the future, Susan, I appreciate, of course, that we don't have a crystal ball in front of us now. Um, but in an ideal world, if we do manage to move out of social restrictions, where do you see the business being by this time in 2022? And what are you really hoping to achieve at Phoenix? I think um, moving forward, a much happier place. I think uh, what we've also learned um, is that, you know, people, we like to be with other people. So I think there's going to be more social interaction. I think people moving forward, perhaps meetings are uh, Zoom meetings or just meetings in a boardroom will probably not necessarily take place. It'll be more perhaps outside having lunches back to the the olden days, perhaps, as I remember it uh, sort of 15 years ago when meetings would be taking place in a cafe or a restaurant where there was laughter. It wasn't so serious. It was more about getting to know people. It's all about the relationships, about the honesty. It's about the reliance. So moving forward, I think there's going to be more meetings, informal meetings in a not an office space environment. I think uh, social platforms are going to be exceptionally prevalent, uh, more so. Um, I think that products are going to be more thought about as to how infections can be spread. Um, I think the younger generation coming through will be more aware of keeping areas sanitized, keeping the divisions perhaps between outdoor, indoor, but Hopefully, fingers crossed, none of that will we'll need to consider after we hopefully come out of this lockdown. It's more about the social spaces and amenities which we see moving forward. I think also it um, clarifies the mind as well. So we're all concerned, of course, uh, with recession. We need to be recession-proof. So we'll all be looking at overheads. So we need to be a lot more financially mindful um, of how we run businesses. And I think with that in mind, it's all about virtual. It's still uh, digital platforms. It's still interaction. Uh, but making it fun, we need our, which is the best job in the world, interior design, might I add. It's all about keeping the fun in our um, environment. Um, making our voices heard um, in a professional manner, making interior design accessible to everybody. We've noticed, of course, that you know, lockdown, uh, people have been at home, you know, people want to get out, free themselves, free their mind, um, about wellness, well being. And interior design encompasses all of all of the above. So it's the best job in the world. Um, we can make our homes so much more comfortable, happy places to be. So I think interior design is just going to be elevated to the next level. It's just going to be a lot more accessible, friendly um, area to be working in and giving pleasure to people because our homes are our sanctuaries. So show houses are our sanctuaries. People walk around show houses for inspiration. So we want it to still our senses, so touch, feel, um, sense, um, all of the interesting products to be brought to life using textures, using colour. So our show homes are going to be more lifestyle. Accessories are going to be more important, more sustainable. Um, we'll be looking at furniture, of course, which are forestry commissioned. Uh, natural products, lots more succulents, lots more trees for the oxygenating qualities. We're also looking at carpets or rugs which have been made from recycled fishing nets or plastic bottles, uh, wallpaper or paints which have got 
um, no nasty chemicals in it. So moving forward, it's not just getting out of um, the COVID. It's also looking at the environment as a whole and how interior design, interior products can actually help our lives, um, evaluate our lives um, and make our lives a lot more interesting. The products that we are going to be looking at and buying, we'll be looking at products that perhaps have been refurbished or upcycled or something from a family heirloom perhaps which might have been thrown away. So we'll be looking at products that we can upcycle and keep for a longer period of time rather than perhaps a throwaway society. So moving forward, it's all about those items being multi-purpose, exciting, um, and something that you would always love, which is important in your home when you're walking around your home. The products that you look at um, really triggers uh, memories, like I've said before. So it should be a well-being. It should be a happy place. And interior design, of course, with all of our 20, 30, 40 years in the, in the business, uh, we know those suppliers, some of those suppliers haven't had a voice because of exhibitions haven't happened. And of course, that was our go-to. That's where we found new products and celebrated those products. So now we'll be looking at different ways of going to exhibitions, uh, whether it's virtual or perhaps visiting, but making it more about the story rather than these amazing um, areas that have been beautifully designed to encourage you to go onto their stand. It will be more about what those products can offer us and enrich our lives it's going to be a very interesting time for interior design as it looks to raise the bar in those aspects certainly with elevating mental health and well-being as you say there susan and i think it's going to be a very interesting journey to watch over the course of the coming months and as it starts to come to fruition i think it would actually be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the show with us just to see how that is coming along because it's been a real eye-opener welcoming you on with us today i have to say thank you Thank you, Susan. And um, also, I would like to say just before we do wrap up, um, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well, because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet. But let's just keep our fingers crossed and stay safe. Indeed. Keep well. Thank you, everybody. I'd extend that to all of our listeners tuning into the show as well today. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a key difference during this time. We're almost there and better days are ahead, but let's just keep cautious. Um, It was a pleasure, of course, today welcoming Susan White, Managing Director at Phoenix Interior Design, onto the programme. And next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the previous 15 or so months of the pandemic and his hopes for the weeks ahead. That is coming up now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? 
And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there 
However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. 
and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now it has been said by certain parties um, and uh, i'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who 
responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the 
greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.